0: hey y'all first of all i want to let you know that i am working on an episode to contextualize what is happening with reproductive politics right now into the history of black women in this country that's in the pipeline should see it in july because i want to talk about it but for right now i promised y'all a part two of my anthems episode that came out a couple months ago And I finally got around to scheduling the second interview, editing it, and here it is. So, for part two, we are returning to the book, Anthem, Social Movements and the Sound of Solidarity in the African Diaspora, by Professor Shana Redmond, who's at Columbia University, to talk about the songs that were at the center of both national and international movements for Black liberation in the 20th century. In part one, we talked about the song, Ethiopia, Lift Every Voice and Sing and Old Man River. Definitely go back and listen to part one if you have it already. Now for part two, we're gonna be looking a little later into the 20th century, starting with We Shall Overcome, which as much as we are traditionally taught that We Shall Overcome is a song of the civil rights movement, its history actually dates back further than that to the Charleston tobacco strike, which is where our story begins. Let's go.
1: We Shall Overcome is typically kind of understood as the anthem of the civil rights movement, certainly the nonviolent wing. And it was that. It absolutely did show up in the more kind of officially recognized 1955-ish, 54 kind of post-Brown versus Board of Education moment into the policy changes and legislation of the middle 1960s. It was absolutely there. It was super significant, very prominent in all of those mobilizations. But as you mentioned, it began in the 1940s, the middle 1940s, where it was picked up in protest struggle around a strike at a tobacco factory in Charleston, South Carolina. It's a really unique moment in thinking both about the civil rights struggle because it's extending that historiography back. The civil rights moment, starting with the Brown v. Board of Education moment in 1954, is actually pretty reductive. There were many, many mobilizations that were already happening, and quite often it was happening under the terms of feeder movements that were organized by other wings of civil rights activity, like the labor movement. So in Charleston, South Carolina, in the middle 1940s, we have the seeds of a really robust labor organizing struggle that's happening in that city. That city, which was, of course, being south of the Mason-Dixon line, of course, being in the United States, right? Jim Crow segregation was not isolated to south of the Mason-Dixon. It was not only isolated to the U.S. south, but being both in the south And in the 1940s, Charleston, South Carolina was overtaken, was trapped in the grip of Jim Crow segregation. So black life in Charleston, South Carolina was quite bleak in many respects, right? They were disadvantaged in the labor pool. They were disadvantaged in education. They were disadvantaged in all of these spheres of social and political life, right? Being removed from the franchise, being removed from the vote. So it was a really rough situation. But at the same time as all of this is happening, Black folks are finding a way to organize that in this tobacco company, which was run by the American Tobacco Company that black women and black men were working these grueling kinds of labor grades, right? These were not the kinds of clean manufacturing, more industrialized elements of the tobacco industry. This was not the moment where women were rolling cigarettes through these kind of high powered mass production machines. Those were the jobs that were reserved for white women in this tobacco company. Black women were the ones who were taking the raw tobacco that had been picked by other Black women and other Black men in the heat and the sun of Charleston and surrounding areas, Black women were stemming the tobacco, right? They were pulling the leaves from the stems that needed then to be discarded. They were doing a lot of the heavy menial work, but also the dirty work in the factory. This was also true of the men who were sometimes doing some of the stemming work, but were also often the ones in the field picking the tobacco. So in the middle 1940s, you have an integrated plant in Charleston, which is interesting, right? They are very divided by race. The kinds of skilled laborers tended to be the white workers. The black workers were doing the lesser skilled, although still tremendously significant, and in different kinds of ways, skilled labor. There was segregation or separation of the races in the factory, but it was an integrated unit. And more importantly, it was an integrated union, So this was a Congress of Industrial Organizations union, Congress, the CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations was a left leaning organization in the 30s and 40s. It was invested in integrated unions because they understood that Black workers were being used as scabs, as strike breakers, as workers to be brought in at lower wages. And it was ultimately breaking the white unions. So the answer was not to fully exclude Black workers. The answer was to integrate the union so that all of the workers were making a similar wage, not an identical wage, but hopefully a similar enough wage that Black Workers could not be pitted against white workers in the same ways, even in these segregated cities. So in the middle 1940s, over wages, over hours of work, but also, interestingly, over racial hostilities and violence in the workplace, the union strikes. Black women in the factory were the leaders of this strike, hands down.
0: Unsurprisingly, Black women weren't the named leaders of this, but they definitely were the leaders in action. In fact, months before this big strike, black women had organized a sit-down strike in the factory in defense of a black man who was accused of some sort of inappropriate gesture towards a white woman at a time when even looking at a white woman for too long could be fatal for a black man.
1: Black women had already set a tone for what the workplace needed to be and what it should be. So when the strike came in 1945, when the CIO local in that tobacco factory decided to go on strike in concert with a a number of other tobacco locals on the eastern seaboard, the Black women were already ready. They were riled up, they were organized, they were ready to get what they needed, which was an increase in wages, a decrease in hours, right? These very kind of bread and butter issues that attend to organized labor, but also that they wanted different kinds of racial dynamics in their factory. And I think there was a, a very clear understanding that they may not win those items because they were really pushing Not only kind of social code within their factory and within their city, but they were also pushing against Jim Crow policy, right, which extended well beyond the purview of American Tobacco Company. But they nonetheless articulated that as central to their agenda for the strike. So Black women are out there on the picket lines, they're organizing the rest of the community to show up, right? Because it was not just the workers who needed to show up, it was the rest of Black Charleston that needed to show up as well. So while the union was integrated, the grand majority of the people who were on the picket lines every single day were the Black workers. And the ways in which they paced that picket line to get to the anthemic is by singing We Shall Overcome. In the middle 1940s, 1945, 46, when the strike took place, We Shall Overcome was marked and announced by members of that local as having been part of their experience of the picket line, that we sung this song that we knew from our churches as a means of building morale, but also of pacing the picket line, right? That the kind of rhythm and cadence of the song became the rhythm and cadence of their footsteps. And so this is where We Shall Overcome shows up prominently as a kind of tool of protest, as a strategy of gathering, a strategy of response in the wake of both racialized and economic violence.
0: So then how did this labor song get into the civil rights movement? The other part of the story, right, is that
1: in the wake of this strike, which was not as successful as anyone hoped it would be, right, they went back after being beat down again and again and again by the company of threats of losing their jobs, of attrition, right? People were just fatigued. It went on for almost a year or more. And by the time in which the strike wrapped up, they didn't meet the kinds of requests that they'd made for their wages and things, but the song goes with those workers. So by this point in the kind of civil rights organizing history, the Highlander Folk School in Monteagle, Tennessee, has developed, which is run by a man named Miles Horton, who believed that workers had every tool they needed already to win but he wanted to encourage them to really organize all of the pieces of themselves as a part of their protest strategy. And one of the ways in which that was brought home was through music. And so the Highlander School would have these workshops where workers from all over the United States, but especially from the United States South, would come and do training sessions. And they would teach each other various songs and strategies that they had learned on the line so that they could carry those back into their labor organizing at their unique city or town or location. And so workers from this local go to Highlander after the strike in Charleston, and they start to teach, We Shall Overcome. And Highlander has a really formative position in the history of we Shall Overcome. It's often cited as the origin story of the song that workers and organizers learned it in Highlander. But then, of course, someone had to learn it in order for it to be taught at Highlander, and they were learning it from these Black workers from the local in Charleston. So that is how the song starts to move its way into the more traditionally understood civil rights movement, is that the workers are teaching it to people at Highlander? Zilfia who runs the music and drama program at Highlander teaches it to workers all over the South? Guy Carawan, uh, Pete Seeger, these people who are known as kind of civil rights troubadours, this kind of folk investment on the cultural wing of the civil rights movement. They learn the song at Highlander. And as they're touring with their organizations, with various locals and civil rights organizations, they also start to teach it to other people. But we really have these Black women tobacco workers in Charleston in 1945 to thank for our knowledge of We Shall Overcome because they are the ones who learned it and used it in struggle and recognized the power of it in pacing movements for justice.
0: Yeah. And you talk about in the book that it was powerful to the point that the police tried to impose a musical gag while they were on the picket line.
1: Yeah, absolutely. This was something that was unusual for the time and location at which this was taking place. First of all, this was still in the wake of World War II, right? So where a lot of unions had taken loyalty oaths that promised that they would not strike. So the strike itself was already a fundamental rupture in how people understood their community, right? That some people were just rabidly anti-union and anti-strike in this moment. And so the police were there to break the strike so that the workers would go back into the factory and stop causing disturbances and slowdowns, right? Because part of this boom in tobacco in this moment is people purchasing cigarettes to send to soldiers abroad. And so there was this huge demand for tobacco products in the moment. So the workers taking advantage of that said, oh no, we're pulling our labor, good luck to you until you meet our demands, right? So the police were there to get them back to work. So every ounce of joy that they displayed on the line was going to be an antagonism to the police so them singing them clapping them smiling at one another them carrying signs with witty slogans and demands the police were allowing if not participating in the the ripping up and destroying of signs people being rough housed pushed out of line all of these things so yes they were singing so much and causing Such a kind of spectacle on the street where people would pause, where people would stop and watch, where people might also join in or be supportive, that the police ultimately went to the courts to try and institute a gag order against the picketers that they could no longer sing on the line. It was ultimately unsuccessful, but that was how tremendously significant the singing was as a site of distraction on the part of, passers-by, but also there was a significant amount of pleasure that they were deriving from the strike activity, even as difficult as it was for them to maintain that solidarity.
0: I can't believe that's like not a story people know, that it was about Black women being the soundtrack of the picket line. You know, it was interesting
1: when I was originally writing or pursuing anthems for this project, it was for my dissertation as a graduate student. And someone encouraged me to look at We Shall Overcome. And I said, nah, you know, like everybody knows that story, linked arms, swaying back and forth, you know, Martin Luther King Jr., And as I started doing the research, I was like, we don't know this story. Like, I have to add this song to the list, not only because it's so iconic, but because the story that we're typically taught about it is wrong or less wrong, right? Because it does show up in the ways I described. It does show up all over the 50s, 60s moment, but we don't know where it started. We don't know why we know this song. And it's because of Black women, almost exclusively, that we know this song.
0: That's a good transition into the next song, also about a Black woman. Song number five is To Be Young, Gifted, and Black by Nina Simone, which starts as a play by Lorraine Hansberry.
1: Yeah, so To Be Young, Gifted, and Black begins as a posthumously released play by Lorraine Hansberry. She had passed away of cancer In the early 1960s, far too young, she was only in her middle 30s when she passed away of cancer, but had already found fantastic success as the author of A Raisin in the Sun, and also had these bits and pieces of other plays that were existing. She had also released a sign in Sidney Brewstein's window. She had written all of these other essays. She had worked for Freedom Ways with Paul Robeson. She had worked in the office with him for the magazine that he began or that he kind of pioneered or led. So she had all of this writing that, because her life was cut so short, had yet to really see the light of day. And after she passes away, her husband collects a number of those materials. Some of them are kind of more healthy portions of a play. Some of them are correspondence between her and folks who are writing to her for advice or ideas or just to bounce creative thoughts off of her. Some of it is composed of pieces of other of her plays. So To Be gifted in Black becomes this kind of narrative collage of various moments in her life, drawn from her plays, but also drawn from her nonfiction. And it's released in the late 1960s and goes on to kind of a tour of the United States. And Nina Simone and Lorraine Hansberry were very, very good friends. Nina credits Lorraine with having taught her about Real woman's work, having taught her about what it really is to be a Black woman in the United States, which is about not makeup. It's not about fashion. She describes it as being about Marxism and revolution. That's what it is to be a Black woman. In this world, and she credits Lorraine as having taught her those things as they'd sip wine and gossip and laugh and play with each other. They'd also be talking about revolution. And so when Lorraine passes, it's hugely devastating for Nina. This new uh, production comes out and starts to tour. And it's in this moment of a rising Black power, right, that the current of nonviolent civil rights activity that had been marked so significantly by Martin Luther King, but also folks like Medgar Evers, these people who were assassinated ultimately for their foundational beliefs in a broader humanity, was now moving towards a Black power vanguard, very much inspired by Malcolm X, very much inspired by people like Stokely Carmichael. People who are committed to thinking globally, but also to thinking through any means by which liberation might be achieved for African descended peoples, right? That it's no longer enough to solely invest in nonviolence, that every means and every opportunity must be seized. And at this moment, to be Young, Gifted, and Black, the language that is attached to the play, which is language that Lorraine herself used in her writing and then becomes the title of the play after her passing, it takes on a new significance. And it takes on this new significance in large part because Nina picks up the title and uses it as the title for her own song of dedication to Lorraine. In 1969, she releases To Be Young, Gifted, and Black, which she's performing in New York. It's a live recording of her performance. And she says this is dedicated to my good friend, Lorraine, who comes closer to me every single day. Every time I sing this song, Lorraine comes closer and closer and closer to me. And so she announces in that performance that she may have to stop singing it pretty soon because she's overwhelmed by how close Lorraine is and how much she misses her. So, it's this really beautiful dual moment of both intense intimacy with this person who taught her so much about the world, her devastation at the fact that Lorraine is gone. But it's also this song from Nina is an offering to the rest of the African world and saying that you are all of these things. You are beautiful. You are black. You are the future. And so this kind of tug between the intimacy and the loss, as well as the gift and the futurity of the song is really, really deep and really, really resonant. And you can hear it in Nina's voice. You can hear it in the tone and quality of it. But you can also see why people were so drawn to it, because it carried all of those things that Black people already knew. We already knew we were losing our friends and family too fast, too quickly. But we also had to believe that something else was possible because we hadn't won yet. We hadn't achieved our liberation in spite of the civil rights legislation, in spite of more elected black officials, all of these things. We were still facing violence every single day, not only in the United States, but throughout the world. And so the song being able to kind of harness both of those energies and hold them in tension with one another is what made it so, so powerful and what ultimately made it an anthem.
0: And that was another one of the songs that like was very international. There's a part in the book where you talk about how she went to Africa, to the Pan-African Festival and brought this song with her.
1: Yeah, so Nina had a very committed relationship to the continent from Lorraine, from Langston Hughes, from other of her friends, other musicians, Babatunde Olatunje, who's a a percussionist from Nigeria. And she does perform at a number of Pan-African festivals here in the United States, as well as abroad, but goes in particular to Lagos with Langston Hughes under the auspices of an organization that we later learned was a cia front organization this is part of the moment also is that nina simone langston hughes all of these people are under surveillance by the cia this is an extension of paul robeson who figures so early in the project in anthem he was being followed At least from the 1930s forward. This is happening in the late 60s into the 1970s, where these musicians, these writers and artists who are establishing a significant base of power amongst themselves because people want to hear from them and they're speaking to the world in ways that are resonant with the kinds of ideologies and demands that leadership, that Black communities are exercising in this moment around the needs for more autonomy, more power, more economic stability, all of these things that we have not yet achieved, all of the promises that were made to us. And we see even more beyond those, that the citizenship model of the United States is inadequate. It's not enough. Even if we did receive all of those fruits, it would still not be enough. It doesn't match our vision for who we are in the world because we are diasporic people. So because these musicians were able to draw audiences to them very literally, but also symbolically, right? That there were people who would listen to Nina Simone and say, oh yeah, this is, has now fundamentally changed my mindset. Or people like Bernice Johnson Regan, who was a SNCC singer, was a formidable organizer, musician, scholar in her own right, described Nina Simone's voice as getting people out of bed in the morning like people who were weary, people who were tired of fighting. She argued that if you put on that Nina Simone album, you'd get out of bed. You'd go do that work, even if you were tired, because she was a draw for people. She was like a magnet. And because of that, She needed to be watched because she was taking more and more radical positions on Blackness in the world, calling for decolonization on the continent. This is at the moment of this wave of decolonial independence movements that are happening, beginning with Ghana in the middle 1950s, all the way through the 1970s. And she's supporting these movements. She's announcing that she is in support of these movements. They have to happen, right? That the uh, liberation... Of Africa is critical to how the black world will understand itself moving forward. We have to achieve independence in Africa. So she's participating in all of these things. So the best thing for the CIA and FBI to do is to draw her in to keep her close so that they can monitor her as well as possible. And so one of the ways that they do that in the 1960s and 70s is they establish these front organizations. These organizations that are meant to be organized symbolically around the ideas of unity, of culture, right? These words that are kind of becoming more and more frequently used in black movement protest And then use those front organizations to organize Black musicians to send them to Africa, to send them to other parts of the global South in an effort then to keep tabs on them. Who are they meeting with while they're over there? What kinds of periodicals are they reading? What numbers are they drawing to these festivals? And so she does go to Lagos with what we later learn is a front organization. At the time, no one knew these things. They just thought these were philanthropic organizations that were working towards cultural exchange. But in the wake of that, we know that they were funded by the CIA. But in this moment, she goes to Lagos. This is her first trip to Africa in the late 1960s. And she, from then on, is totally hooked and fascinated and committed to these organizations. And in the early 1970s, she's there. At a certain point, she goes into exile from the United States in the 1970s and spends a significant amount of time in Liberia and as then moving from Liberia to Europe. And so she becomes this kind of icon for thinking about a Pan-African diasporic sensibility. And you hear it not only in what she's Discussing in her music, she draws into community all African descended peoples, but you also see it in her aesthetic changes, right? That she's not straightening her hair anymore. She's not wearing straight wigs anymore. She's wearing cornrows and braids and beads in her hair and African textiles and giving up. The kind of glitz and glamour that defined her in the late 50s, early 60s and wearing her afro and doing all of these things that she becomes a symbol of this move towards a militant Black internationalism. And to be ungifted in Black is the center of that project because of its attachment to Lorraine, who always had a diasporic sensibility, who in the 1950s was writing about the Mau Mau rebellion in Kenya. So Nina's song in the book is distinct in some ways, not only for this turn to Black militancy, but also because it was officially adopted by a movement organization the Congress of Racial Equality had taken a swift turn from a nonviolent positionality when it began in the early 1960s to a very militant leftist nationalist position in the late 60s, early 70s. And they marked that moment by announcing To Be Young, Gifted, and Black as their movement, as their organization anthem in 1971, and went so far as to say, Not only is it our anthem, but it is the new Black national anthem, unseating Lift Every Voice and Sing, which up until that point had been the Negro national anthem. No longer calling themselves Negroes. We were now Black people and we need a new anthem. And the new Black national anthem is to be ungifted and Black.
0: It's so interesting that the song is like it marks a transition in Nina Simone's life, but also in the wider movement.
1: When people listen differently, they live differently. And this is actually Black musicians quite often following what they see happening in the streets, right? So calling themselves Black. And being very explicit and very proud of the use of that word, that was not something that the musicians devised. That was something that the people devised. That's what the people decided needed to happen. And so, quite often, it was the musicians who were actually following the streets. But because they had the platform, they could then further it that much more, that it would, became even more heightened in its usage, in its applicability, in its impact, because the musicians were now launching it from the stage and on their albums, and on the radio, and reaching a global audience in that. And so this sea change from an identity marker of Negro to Black was really pushed forward by the musicians, but it didn't originate with them. This really important moment, too, of moving from this leadership model that had been so firmly attached to the nonviolent wing of the civil rights movement, where you had to have this kind of singular, charismatic male figure at the forefront of everything. And it's not to say that those leaders weren't significantly deeply impactful. And it's not to say that they disappeared in the Black Power moment, but it is to say that in this move from nonviolence, there was a different kind of investment in the people, capital T, capital P, that the kinds of sensibilities, aesthetic practices, the languages and kind of vocabularies that people were using, the kinds of study that Black communities were taking part in in this moment were differently impactful in thinking about, well, what is the future of Black mobilization? What does our liberation look like? And it was not singularly defined by these leaders. It was actually developing grassroots effort that then required a different kind of repression. And this is why we have the police and the carceral state rising as a formation at the same time as this black militancy is happening, right? We need broader measures by which we control black people because it's not enough anymore to just assassinate the leader. You can't just kill the leader anymore. These are broad based movements. These are global movements. And so we need a structure to rise in demand of continuing surveillance, continuing suppression, continuing violence, and this is where the carceral state starts to rise in the in the middle 1970s. So those two things go together. I don't talk about that so much in the book, but it's it, for historical context. It's really important to think about those things happening together.
0: Music really does just reveal so much more.
1: Everything. Music tells us everything. And, you know, I think too often people kind of poo-poo it as entertainment or the musicians don't know what they're talking about or whatever else, but this is how people live like in particular Black folks, like if we think about how significant our musicians have been to how we understand ourselves in the world and the ways in which we organize ourselves moving forward, how our musicians help us to not only survive the present, but to dream a future, there's no way to isolate or contain that formation. This is knowledge. So when the MCs came out and said we're dropping knowledge, dropping science, like they meant it because this is what black music has always been and continues to be.
0: So we you're we just talking about Africa, which the last song is actually we're going to South Africa. It's not one that started in America to talk about Inkosi Sigalele Africa.
1: Inkosi Sigalele Africa was a song that began amongst indigenous black peoples in South Africa and I want to be clear that indigeneity is also applicable to African descended peoples that these were the first peoples of South Africa it actually was written in the late 19th century so you know this the book ends with the global mass media movement against apartheid, but apartheid was a long struggle, right? And this song marks an even longer trajectory. This song grows up in some respects alongside Lift Every Voice and Sing, which is one of the earlier songs in Anthem. And so that was part of the thinking in ending the book this way is not just about the movement chronology, which places us in the 70s, 80s, 90s as apartheid is coming to an end, but also thinking about how long this music survived as evidence of Black South African struggle. It survived more than a century. It's written in the late 19th century, and it's written in a very kind of formal hymn tradition, very much, again, like Lift Every Voice and Sing, four-part harmonies, entirely vocal, no percussive element. So this is a song that is grown in some portion from contact with colonial systems, right? That they're learning these four-part harmonies in these indoctrinating schools in South Africa as colonists enter into the country and start to take over. But it's also being grown from when Black South Africans are understanding that their country is changing. And even though they remain the grand majority of the population, that the power structure is now radically working against them. It's no longer theirs. And so this song that rises in the late 19th century or is composed in the late 19th century then gets adopted around 1912 in the early 19-teens by the nascent African National Congress. So the African National Congress begins in this 19-teens moment as an organization of protection and solidarity and so mobility becomes one of the political kind of flashpoints, both for these colonial, these settler colonial governments that are trying to know where black bodies are at all times, right? Because they were in the majority, very, very different than any circumstance in the United States. And one of the ways that they do that is through these past laws over the course of some decades codified through kind of social practice, right? The white settlers telling the Black South Africans, no, you can't do that. You can't go there. And everyone being deputized to keep Black South Africans in line, but it's also codified through law. And so over time, Black South Africans now have to have a white settler having signed off on their ability to move from location to location? Do you have a reason to be here that is overwhelmingly determined by racial capitalism, that they are only meant to move in service of white economic stability, right? That they have to be moving from job to job or running errands for their white master or their white employer. And so the African National Congress develops in the nineteen teens as a way of trying to strategize around how do we survive these things? We recognize that the political life of this country has changed dramatically, and especially in the wake of what is announced exclusively by settlers, because Black South Africans have been removed from the franchise, right? In 1948, apartheid is used as a language to organize relationships now between Indigenous South Africans and the settlers, right? Apartheid, which is described at that moment by the National Party as a policy of good neighborliness, meaning radical Jim Crow segregation, or what we call Jim Crow in the United States, right? Radical separation that is both about containing Black people in certain areas, but also dispossessing these Black communities of the richest resources of their land, that that now belongs to settlers. It belongs to the white people. So by the middle 1950s, apartheid is in full effect, and so is the ANC. The African National Congress grows and grows and grows. It becomes more and more invested in organizing efforts that in some cases are mirrored by U.S. civil rights efforts in the 1940s and 50s, so making legal challenges on the settler state, right? So this is why you have people like Oliver Tambo and Nelson Mandela going to law school. They recognize that legislation is one way, not the only way, but one way of raging against the apartheid system. But they also recognize by the middle and late 1950s, early 1960s, that that's not getting it. It's not enough that the majority is still well under the heel of the settler regime. And so the ANC develops Un Conto we Sizwe, which is Spear of the Nation, which is the militant wing of the organization. And they decide that nonviolence is not the only way. And so they start training soldiers in satellites across the continent. And so the ANC goes into exile because it has become a band system, a band organization under apartheid. Apartheid established a whole sequence of band organizations, band artists, band musicians. Paul Robeson was one of them. He was banned on the radio in South Africa under apartheid. So too was the ANC. And so too was Miriam Makeba. Miriam Makeba, who grew up as a musician, was part of 1950s kind of more popular leaning groups in South Africa, was building a name for herself as a vocalist, and then takes part in the filming of a movie called Comeback Africa, which became another banned film by the ANC government because there were conversations that were had in that film about what it meant to be a black South African. It was not an explicitly political film necessarily, but seeing black South Africans discussing with one another, what their future would look like, what kinds of investments they had in their country was seen as treason by the apartheid government. And she was in that film. She sung in that film. And for that, she was banned also banned from the radio, banned from the stage. She was in danger in her native land for having spoken openly about having love for her country and wanting something radically different for it. And so she too goes into exile. So the ANC goes into exile in order to organize militant wings Miriam Makeba goes into exile because she's forced into exile. She even loses her passport. Once she leaves South Africa, the apartheid government uh, seizes her passport. So, again, another Robeson kind of resonance that's happening in the middle 20th century. And she starts to tour in Europe and the United States. And she's carrying with her in Kosi Sikalili, Africa. She's carrying with her in performance this song which over the course of the middle and late 20th century, over the course of its usage by the ANC, having been adopted by that organization, that organization that had established itself, cells of itself in various African nations, as well as in Europe. There were cells in Europe as well that were training and learning and studying about how to overthrow the apartheid government. Because the song had been adopted by the ANC and was being used in all of its formal ceremonies because it was being sung by Miriam Makeba, this song gets taken up not only as the anthem of the anti-apartheid struggle, but also as part of this catalog of decolonial performances that are happening all over the continent. So in Kosi Sikilea di Africa, which is not necessarily speaking specifically to South Africa, but we want our country to be free, which is what they announce in that song, Let Africa Be Free, is being taken up in all of these decolonial movements in Angola, in all of these countries seeking independence. And it becomes, in many respects, a pan-African anthem. All of this is happening at the same time, the late 60s, 1970s, all of these movements, Mir Mikheba showing up at Carnegie Hall and performing with Harry Belafonte, recording an album with him. He's pushing for anti-apartheid legislation. He's pushing for the United States to ban South Africa, to set up a boycott of South Africa, right? All of these things are happening at the same time. And she becomes known as Mama Africa for her voice, for having spoken to the needs of her community, not only in South Africa, but across the continent. She is in exile in other African countries over the course of the 70s and 80s and becomes the voice of the continent in its struggles for independence. And Nkosi Sikolil becomes the song that is located in each of those struggles along the way.
0: It's really interesting the way that It starts with kind of trying to restrict movement and like closely surveil people. But in doing that and trying to exile, the chapter is called Sounds of Exile. And in exiling people, that's how it spread. That's how the song, the anthem and the thought behind it became Pan-African.
1: Exactly. And this is why music is so, so powerful, And this is language that Harry Belafonte used. You can cage the singer, but you can't cage the song. That because they were forcing people out into the world, forcing people into exile, people were sharing their knowledges in very intimate ways with people all over the world. They were building entire audiences of support through having been forced into exile. And because these songs were being carried with them, people were learning the words, they were sharing them with other people. Music is a perfect conduit for thought, right? That it carries all of these ideologies with it. It carries all of these traditions and especially when set up in very particular ways by someone who's deeply, deeply impacted because it was a South African who taught folks this song. It matters that much more. These are representatives of their country, right? And so this is it because this is the language that they're using, because this is the song that they're using. It is deeply authentic to that community, to that moment and to that struggle. And so people being able to hold on to that language as an opportunity to know something different about the world and to push against it in ways that people readily recognized as an antagonism, singing this song was going to piss the apartheid government off. And so they let her do it. They asked her to do it over and over and over again, because it was a constant thorn in the side of that country. Even if it wasn't Miriam Bekeba testifying before the United Nations, which she also did during apartheid to rage against the South African regime. Even if it wasn't that, it was this song that was not the national anthem that the apartheid regime insisted upon. So once the regime had established itself, it developed an entirely new national anthem for South Africa. And it was very much about about land, about the blue skies, all of these things that are deeply settler in its relationship to extraction, to possession, right? That these Dutch and British settlers were going to absorb, they were going to take all of these natural resources. And this is what you hear pitched in the anthem that they select, which it's not in indigenous South African languages. It's in Afrikaner, which is what was being forced upon Black South Africans in the educational system as well, right? That you had to learn Afrikaans in order to sing this song, in order to participate in the school system in South Africa under apartheid. So they were raging against that language. They were raging against the stories told in what the Afrikaners had established as the national anthem. And it then was being shared all over the world, in Australia, all over Europe, everywhere, in Canada, right, that there were cells and tours that were happening. So in addition to these training cells that were happening with the ANC, the ANC also had a cultural organization, a performance organization that they would send out on tours, In the 1970s and 1980s. And all of these countries, as the global anti-apartheid movement was raging, would invite them to come perform. And these would be sold out shows, right? All of that money going straight back into the ANC to fight apartheid. And in that stage show... Nkosi Sikalele is very prominent. It starts the show and it ends the show. And you hear pieces of the composition throughout the performance as well, because the performance was meant to tell the story of Black South Africa over time. And because Nkosi Sikalele Africa had started in the 19th century, it was a perfect place for them to begin but also because of its use in the ANC, a perfect place for the performance to end. And so from start to finish, you're hearing this song and it's becoming the counter anthem to what South Africa, the apartheid government is telling you is the sound of South Africa. Brilliant, brilliant strategy on the part of the ANC taking their forced exile as an opportunity to build community all over the globe. And this is what made it possible for there to be a global movement against the regime in the 1980s, 1990s, and ultimately for the system to fall by 1995.
0: Music is so powerful. Thank you for coming and finishing the conversation with me, Professor.
1: Of course, I'm happy to do it. Thank you for having me.
0: Honestly, I probably could have given each song in Professor Redmond's book its own episode because... Taking a look at these songs reveals so much about what was going on around them. Black music, what a way to look at the 20th century. If you like this show or this episode, tell people about it, please. Your word of mouth has really helped a lot. As always, you can follow me on social media. It's at we the black people pod on Facebook and Instagram and at we the black pod on Twitter. All power to all people, y'all.